Hello, everybody. This is your captain speaking. I'm Jay Rollins at the helm, commanding your flight to reality. We expect a bit of turbulence ahead because we're asking the question today, should the Boeing 737 MAX be scrapped? I'm going to fully explain the problems swirling about this jet in just a few minutes, so keep those seatbelts handy. Last time we explored the tough but rewarding path to becoming a U.S. naval aviator, but this show is really about you. There are many paths to many air and space careers. Not only that, but there are countless more careers and businesses out there, so I want to talk a little bit about those ideas. Because every day you are commanding your own flight to reality. You know, jobs can be thought of as mostly a science or an art, but virtually all of them are done best when you draw from both realms to one extent or another. So even though flying a plane requires disciplined, logical thought, the same principles that make for a successful pilot can be applied to most any field, even the arts. After my time with the U.S. Navy, I finally realized my college dream. I was hired to fly large jets by one of the world's best-known airlines. I was based out of Chicago, where I was born and raised. And not long after arriving home, I reconnected with a best friend from grade school, the late Charles Sherman. And one day, he came out to Chicago's O'Hare International Airport to visit me in the cockpit at work. As a kid, I learned the basics of classical piano, but Charles was a professional musician holding two master's degrees, one in piano and one in organ. He was a musical director at a major church in the Chicago area where he routinely played a mammoth pipe organ with like four or five rows of keyboards, full floor pedals, and a wide console filled with dozens of knobs and switches with which to control all the glorious sounds that such a grand instrument as a full pipe organ is able to produce. So when he walked into the Boeing 727 cockpit, I remember he asked me in wonderment, Jay, how can you possibly keep up with all these dials and switches up here? I remember thinking, how ironic. And I told him, well, Charles, how the heck do you pick up a sheet of music from the great composers and keep up with all those keyboards, knobs, and pedals on that amazing pipe organ? You seem to play with such ease. But Charles only laughed and said, yeah, but baby, you playing with life and death up here. So my point is, it doesn't matter if the job is a science or an art or exactly what your particular talent is. Apply yourself to the task and go for it. Take the time to fully develop your skills by learning from the masters. Some of them are quite tough, but they're often your best teachers. Practice, practice, practice. And one day, you're doing amazing things you never thought possible, too. Okay, so let's get started with our very first air pop quiz. And don't you dare turn to the internet for the answer. I promise to give you the full answer at the end of today's flight. So here's the question. What is a winglet and what is it used for? Once again, what is a winglet? And what is it used for? 
Okay, so you got your seatbelts fastened, right? Let's talk about this Boeing 737 MAX problem with the clear understanding that I'm offering my analysis and opinion based on facts as researched in a Pulitzer Prize winning Seattle Times series by Dominic Gates and Mike Baker. I also reviewed material from the New York Times, Reuters, the Australian 60 Minutes TV show, the Boeing website, and more. So let me start by disclosing that I approach this issue very deeply saddened by the loss of life. Never mind the economic damage that threatens a company whose aircraft I knew and loved even as a teen. I was fully an adult before I understood that Boeing was not a verb, but a brand name, an aircraft manufacturer, same as today we understand Tesla does not describe all electric cars, it's just the best known manufacturer. The name rolls off the lips, Boeing 727, 737, and Boeing 747, and always associated with the highest quality airliners anywhere in the world. I flew the 727, 757, and 767, and every one of them were top-of-the-line aircraft, truly the gold standard for their day. When Airbus first came on the scene, airline pilots carried on with a friendly rivalry centered on which aircraft was the better, and you can probably guess where I stood. Boeing relied upon traditional pulleys and cables to mechanically meter hydraulic pressure to activate flight control surfaces, and well-trained pilots were relied upon to safely fly the aircraft. But Airbus preferred so-called fly-by-wire computerized technology to do the same job using electrical circuitry rather than heavier pulleys and cables. Well, when an Airbus pilot moves the cockpit joystick to fly the aircraft, the joystick doesn't directly move the flight surfaces outside. Instead, it electrically signals an onboard computer to direct which flight controls move and how much deflection so as to maneuver the aircraft according to the pilot's original input mediated by preset limits that are set by the manufacturer. This system inherently saves weight and therefore fuel, but it also protects the aircraft from an unwary pilot who might inadvertently place the aircraft in jeopardy aerodynamically. However, the debate over which manufacturer's philosophy was superior tilted against Airbus in June of 2009 when a faulty sensor overwhelmed the computer and subsequently confused the pilots such that Air France Flight 447 crashed into the sea, killing all 228 passengers and crew. Later, investigators determined that a faulty sensor led to a nasty wing stall that night, after which the aircraft began to rapidly lose altitude. Investigators determined that one pilot was directing the nose down while the other unknowingly directed it up, such that control was never regained by either pilot. Instead, the aircraft dropped into the sea below, locked in a deep stall the entire way down. 
This scenario would not have played out the same on a Boeing jetliner because the captain and first officer flight controls could not physically be placed in different positions from one another because they are mechanically interconnected. But the recent 737 MAX crashes have severely damaged Boeing's reputation because investigators believe both the Lion Air 610 crash, which killed 189 when it crashed minutes after takeoff into the Java Sea in October of 2018, and the Ethiopian 302 flight, which killed another 157 people after it also crashed shortly after takeoff in March of 2019. They were both caused by a flawed design and oversight process conducted by both Boeing and the FAA. Rather than taking the time and expense to design an all-new aircraft, it appears that Boeing instead attempted to update the highly successful 737 aircraft series by adding a new MCAS software system. And the system was added without fully informing pilots how the plane would behave differently. With MCAS, Boeing seems to have abandoned their long-held philosophy not to add active devices that might mechanically override a pilot's flying judgment. Did you know until this max grounding that the Boeing 737 series of aircraft were the best-selling airlines ever built, but following the grounding of the 737 MAX, Sales of the Airbus A320 have surpassed total sales for the Boeing 737 series since November of 2019. Before we talk about how this happened, allow me to first explain aircraft trim, what it is and how it is managed aboard airliners. When you drive your car down a straight section of highway, you don't want the vehicle to pull one way or the other every time you loosen your grip on the wheel, let alone if you happen to take your eyes off the road just to read a passing signpost. Can you imagine how exhausted you would be to drive four hours across the state with the car pulling to the right whenever you relaxed your grip the entire distance? You want the car to comfortably track straight ahead until you apply light pressure to the wheel to steer right or left. Sailors trim their sails to stabilize sailing yachts according to the vagaries of the wind and pilots do the same for their airplanes. Trim helps maintain the balance of the plane in three-dimensional space which eases the pilot's workload flying. If a pilot chooses to fly perfectly level at 8,000 feet and 250 knots for 10 minutes and then chooses to climb and level off at 12,000 feet, during which time he or she accelerates to 350 knots for the next half hour, for each maneuver the pilot moves the appropriate controls and follows up with trimming to aeronautically match the aircraft to the new flight conditions. In practice, pilots and even the autopilot flies and trims, flies and trims, flies and trims. Airliners can be trimmed in three directions, rudder trim to maintain the nose straight ahead with occasional adjustments right or left of, uh, of center, 
aileron trim to preclude any tendency for one wing to rise higher than the opposing wing since this condition would nudge the aircraft to drift off heading. And finally, elevator trim is used to assist in maintaining the nose pitch above or below the horizon. The long fuselage and heavy weight of air airliners means up and down pitch trim is especially important. If such a system fails by actively running the trim away from a state of aerodynamic equilibrium, then very quickly the aircraft could become increasingly difficult if not impossible to fly. And this is at the core of what is believed to have happened with Lion Air 610 and Ethiopian 302 crashes. To avoid such nightmares, Boeing employs a pair of large interconnected wheels which are mounted into the center console between the pilots on 727s and 737s. Anytime the pitch trim changes up or down, the interconnected wheels move in one direction or the other consistent with the trim change. If the trim wheels suddenly begin to move one direction or other, uncommanded by either the pilots or the autopilot, then it is assumed to be a runaway trim emergency, a situation that demands immediate action on the part of the pilots. If all else fails to stop the runaway, pilots might have to physically grab and restrain one of the wheels to halt the worsening imbalance between the trim input and reverse the flight controls until the faulty system can be fully overridden by a backup trim system. Meanwhile, until the trim balance is restored, the flight controls will feel dramatically heavier in direct response to how far the trim repositioned before it could be stopped. And see, all along, you thought the airplane practically flies itself on the autopilot. Got those seat belts good and tight yet? Well, now it may seem clunky and strange to you, but actually this mechanical system has proven to be quite reliable over many years and many, many more aircraft. And no, this system is not the cause of the 737 MAX crashes, but you can begin to understand how a malfunction with a new control system that acts through the same set of trim wheels without advising pilots of the addition how such a system might easily confuse pilots what was actually happening. Now let's talk about angle of attack. Have you ever placed your flat hand outside a car window at like 70 miles per hour or 112 kilometers per hour for my non-American friends? If you extend your flattened hand out the horizon out to the horizon anyway, it flies reasonably level in the wind. But the minute you tip the thumb end of your hand up to an angle similar to a ceiling fan paddle, your hand abruptly rises higher. Well, the same principle holds true for wings at flying speed as they pass through the slipstream. If wings are angled up or down to strike, or as we say, attack, the relative wind at an angle, then the wing's lifting force increases or decreases exponentially. 
The specific angle at which the wings slice at the relative wind is what aeronautical engineers refer to as the wing's angle of attack. And keep in mind, the angle of attack is not measured up or down from the horizon, but the relative wind. But there's a limit to all of this. When you angle your hand too steeply into the wind outside, what happens? Your hand stops flying and abruptly snaps backwards because when the angle grows too steep, the airflow can no longer smoothly follow the contour of your hand. It grows turbulent, separates violently, and lift drops off dramatically, leaving only high drag behind. The exact same thing happens when wings are positioned beyond what we call their critical angle of attack. Lift abruptly turns turbulent and falls away just as drag spikes higher. We describe this condition as an aerodynamic stall. So when a pilot refers to a stall, we're not referring to the engines at all, but a condition where the wings are no longer lifting the aircraft. Obviously, this is a very serious condition because it guarantees the aircraft will lose significant altitude until a proper recovery is initiated. Now, please allow me to toss my flight instructor's hat aside and lean upon my aerospace engineering studies to offer a peek as to how aircraft are designed. During my last year at the University of Texas, aerospace engineering students were required to take a course in aircraft design, where the class split into small teams to develop a small aircraft from scratch. One group was responsible for the landing gear, another for the power plant, the wings, fuselage and tail, and aircraft performance. We began by agreeing what the purpose and capabilities would be for our aircraft, and very soon we realized that any change made by one team or another required review and more changes from all the others until all the sections of the aircraft worked together in harmony. It was the professor who took the broad view as to how well the class project came together as a flyable aircraft that would meet our stated design criteria. It took the full semester for the class to deliver the mathematical outlines of a simple Cessna-sized propeller-driven airplane acceptable to our professor. Now scale up our class project to a company the size of Boeing designing and supplying jet airliners to the world. The complexity is mind-boggling. The supply chains, logistics, world marketing, competitive pressures, oxygen and pressurization, and firefighting systems, electrical, state-of-the-art global navigation systems, sophisticated retractable flaps, slats, complex flight controls, and spoiler mixing, fuel, hydraulic, and anti-icing systems, throw in designs for partially heated and pressurized cargo compartments, lightweight ovens and serving carts, and fancy vacuum-operated laboratory systems. Little wonder such aircraft cost tens of millions of dollars. Yet at some point, the entire design must be tested in wind tunnels, simulators, and even the real world to ensure every eventuality and cross-system impact is considered. 
flight manuals, training syllabi, maintenance manuals must all be drawn up for that particular model to ensure safety of the operation. Meanwhile, in place of our professor to oversee the final product, aircraft on this scale are reviewed by a team of profit-oriented management engineers and pilots, with the FAA, Federal Administra Aviation Administration, standing watch every step of the way to ensure the new aircraft will meet strict safety guidelines in the face of every conceivable hazard. Then and only then can a jetliner be certified as airworthy. So through that lens, every airline, every airliner that's delivered to the airlines anyway, for purchase is an engineering marvel. Yet something went very wrong with the 737 MAX. Apparently a number of things went wrong. So let's talk about the devil in the details, the Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System, or MCAS. Did you know the original design for the 737 MAX did not even call for an MCAS at all? Wind tunnel testing with a scaled model in 2012 and subsequent retesting revealed an aerodynamic anomaly in the aircraft design. At high speeds, high altitudes, and high angles of attack, engineers noticed a tendency for the nose of the aircraft to pitch up. The reason why had to do with the larger, more powerful engines selected for the 737 MAX. In fact, they were so large that the new engines had to be mounted forward of the wings so that the oversized intakes could adequately clear the ground for takeoff taxi and landing. But this change also shifted significant weight and thrust forward. Now at high speed and high angles of attack, the exposed engine pods would create enough additional lift that the angle of attack would pitch even higher and closer to a rather nasty high speed stall. This was clearly unacceptable under FAA transport design rules, so Boeing attempted various physical adjustments to fix the problem, but nothing worked. On the other hand, since the problem never occurred in the normal flight regime for jet aircraft, engineers finally agreed upon a simple remedy, MCAS. Under conditions of high speed and high G loads, the system would automatically nudge the nose down in the rare instance where this odd situation might be encountered. They also calculated that although this flight characteristic might be classified as hazardous and therefore would not require the usual two sensors, but only one. FAA design regulations allowed an exception for anomalies which only occurred outside the aircraft's normal flight regime. MCAS saved the day. Never mind this solution cut against corporate orthodoxy, which held automated mechanical assists for Boeing aircraft were to be avoided on the basis that in case of a conflict, Pilots should override computers, not the other way around. 
Indeed, this system works so seamlessly, though, with the flight controls, and then only for use in circumstances so narrow and rare that managers saw no need to even advise pilots that the system was even installed aboard the aircraft. There were also reports suggesting company engineers felt pressured to hurry along development of the MAX, given how sales were growing for their chief rival aircraft, the Airbus A320, which was already in service. But at least the pesky pitch-up devil had been exorcised. Everything was coming along just fine. That is, until they began flight testing in the real aircraft. Four years later, in 2016, full-scale test flights of the 737 MAX were well underway. And then, without warning, the pitch-up demon reappeared. Worse, this time test pilots reported that the phenomenon was occurring during certain conditions of low-speed flight, like climb-out. So engineers soon returned to the silent service of MCAS to address the newly discovered handling problems. Aerodynamics of flight at slower speeds require greater deflections of the flight controls than the original MCAS could provide. So engineers set about to greatly expand its authority so as to more aggressively drive the nose down whenever the system detected high angles of attack with the flaps retracted. Since they also concluded G-forces were of little consequence in slow-speed flight, they also removed G-forces as a necessary trigger for the system. The FAA never required a new safety inspection or assessment for the reconfigured MCAS system because they considered high-speed cruise flight to be the more critical concern, and that matter had already been addressed in Boeing's previously submitted safety assessment at the time MCAS was first introduced. A Pulitzer Prize-winning Seattle Times article from 2019 quotes one of the Boeing test pilots lamenting that technical details on MCAS had not been provided to his team. Consequently, they neither brainstormed its function, conducted flight tests to evaluate failures of the system, nor did they circle back to review the wisdom of relying upon only one angle of attack sensor to trigger so much more functionality. But the assessment that high-speed flight under high Gs would be critical but rare, such that one sensor would be sufficient, ignored the fact that the rejiggered system for the low-speed regime would trigger a much more aggressive response by MCAS once the flaps were retracted and the system detected the angle of attack had exceeded the preset limit, using only one sensor for that purpose. Not only could the system apply a nose-down correction at a faster rate, but also over a greater range of pitch than before and do it repeatedly for as long as the, it continued to sense an excessively high angle of attack. Add to that, max pilots at the airlines later complained they were left uninformed, either through direct simulator training or even a flight manual to advise pilots about MCAS when the aircraft first went into service.
They did not know, for instance, that MCAS activates the trim system to dry the nose down. Such inputs spin the trim wheels, and so it looks very much like a runaway trim problem we talked about earlier. They needed to be informed that once activated, the system runs the trim down for up to nine seconds, pauses five seconds, and then reapplies the correction again and again as long as it detected that the angle of attack remained excessive. The Seattle Times now reports that Boeing's safety analysis for the MCAS system rested on the expectation that pilots would react to any malfunction of the system within three seconds. But it, the newspaper also observes officials already had information that it takes the average pilot seven seconds to react to a runaway trim failure, the very system MCAS mimics in actual operation. So there is little evidence that anyone at Boeing or the FAA carefully thought through what might happen if the sole sensor falsely indicated an excessive angle of attack. Tragically, the whole world learned with the two fatal crashes. Investigators believe in both accidents that early in the climb and soon after flap retraction, a faulty angle of attack sensor erroneously signaled an excessive angle of attack to the aircraft MCAS system. Imagine a routine flight with no knowledge of MCAS when suddenly the trim wheels spring to life, spinning forward, driving the nose steeply down, even as you pull back on the control with upwards of 40 to 50 pounds of pressure in an attempt to overcome the MCAS. At the same time, a stall warning violently shakes the column to warn that the aircraft is slow and approaching a stall. Yet a separate clacker noise warns the speed is too high and all the while multiple warnings and caution lights collect across the flight screens. After nine seconds, the system stops trimming, and the pilots struggle to pull the heavy nose back up to level flight and retrim the wheel back to normal by any means, even physically cranking the trim wheel like a boat winch. But then, after only a five-second reprieve, the system re-engages, spinning the wheel forward again and driving the nose into a second steep dive for another terrifying nine seconds. This would be followed by yet another five-second countdown. Each dive, the aircraft flies faster and faster until the trim wheel forces are so great that it can no longer be used at all. And yet another dive begins to the recorded impossible demand blares from a loudspeaker, pull up, pull up, with no chance to understand what unforeseen force is making all this happen until the inevitable end. It had to be horrific, and I grieve for all who suffered so violent a fate. So what is Boeing doing to fix the problem? It does not look as if they are prepared to dump the 737 MAX or even the MCAS system outright. But apparently they are working to reprogram the MCAS so as to limit its response to only one activation. Some point out 
there were two angle of attack vanes available on the aircraft fuselage, so why didn't Boeing use them both to avoid a false positive? Well, I never found a solid answer in my research, but it does look as if they intend to use both going forward. Reports also suggest they have retweaked pilot control over the trim system, and yes, apparently they seem prepared to add MCAS simulator training for MAX pilots. No doubt they are working hard to solve the design de deficiencies under the skeptical eyes of regulators, insurers, the airlines, pilots, and the traveling public around the world. I expect they desperately want to redeem their brand and finally turn the chapter on this nightmare, but only time can tell should the 737 MAX be scrapped, or will they find success? All right, so now you probably know way more than you ever wanted to know about what happened with the 737 MAX, so let's wind down by circling back to the air pop quiz question asked at the beginning of our flight. What are winglets and what are they used for? Well, winglets are the special wingtip treatments seen at the end of airliner wings. The new shapes actually save airliners billions in fuel costs. Engineers have long known about wingtip treatments and how they help to block the leakage of air from the high-pressure bottom of a flying wing to the top, this even before the Wright brothers flew in 1903. Even paper airplane enthusiasts get further flight distance by pinching the wingtips up. So in 1977 was when NASA, the U.S. Air Force, and Boeing initiated a winglet flight test program. This was validated through Whitcomb Aviation Partners Boeing, now known as APB, and they were the ones who created the blended winglets that you see on Boeing aircraft. So at the end of the day, winglets are very important to the airlines. They do add a couple of hundred pounds to the total weight, but uh, and they cost about a million dollars to install. But on the other hand, the fuel savings is pretty amazing, 4 to 4% and Another 2% for the ones that are designed looking like a scimitar with a split. 737-700, for example, saves 100,000 gallons a year. It also saves on the environment 6% less CO2 emissions, 8% less nitrogen oxide ignition, uh, uh, emissions, excuse me, and noise reduction. So, there are many benefits since the aircraft is actually burning less fuel. It also increases performance at high altitude airports because of less drag. The climb out performance is better. So winglets are well worth the investment and that's why you tend to see them everywhere. Well that's pretty much our our flight for today. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you come back and visit us soon. Uh, we have a lot of good things coming, and uh, as I say, stay with us on our flight to realities, and have a great day.